You're listening to the Ultimate Youth Worker Podcast. Today's episode, Youth and Substance Abuse. Let's get into this. You're listening to the Ultimate Youth Worker Podcast with your host, Aaron Garth. Thanks for listening to the Ultimate Youth Worker Podcast. You're here with Aaron, and we got a show for you today. Uh, one of our missions is to get some more academics onto the podcast to share the academic work that's going on behind the scenes in youth work. And today we're blessed to have one of our uh, favorite academics come on the show. Uh, Dr. Catherine Daly is a lecturer in the School of Global and Urban and Social Studies at RMIT. She researches issues of marginalized youth, including substance abuse, self-injury, homelessness, gender, and sexual abuse. Her latest book, Youth and Substance Abuse, was published earlier this year in 2017, and uh, Catherine teaches courses in social research and policy. But prior to that, she was uh, a youth worker in a youth alcohol and other drug service. So her understanding of this topic is uh, is right on track. And uh, one of the questions we always get uh, as youth workers is around drug and alcohol. Why do young people start using drug and alcohol? Uh, and uh, Catherine's going to talk through some of that with us today. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hey guys, it's a really great opportunity for us to hear today from Kat Daly from RMIT. Uh, as you heard, Kat's got amazing experience in this area of youth and uh, substance abuse, and uh, her research is uh, some of the best I've read, at least, over the, the last uh, little while. And uh, Kat, welcome. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, I suppose, just to, to get us started, Kat, how is it that you started to put some feelers into this research? So I worked as a um, youth drug and alcohol worker um, when I was a graduate after finished my undergrad, um, and I really, you know, enjoyed it. And I had no intention of not being a frontline practitioner. You know, yep. like I'd, <laughs> it wasn't the goal to sort of end up being a researcher. I guess in my, <laughs> what I was trying to arrive at there. Um, but when I was working in the field, you know, you probably remember it was like you kind of you've graduated during the field and you feel completely inequipped, like with real clients. You know? Yes. And I mean, sure we can say sort of uni doesn't have enough in it, but part of it's just, it's just a big jump to go from a study to the workforce, no matter what your discipline is. I, I think we've all felt that at, yeah. at some stage, that, that sense that uh, I'm not ready for this, this job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that it just kind of like, you know, for the people that leave an accounting degree turn up and, an accounting firm and it has the same thing you know yes. it's just um but as a consequence you, you're kind of grouping for you, you don't have any practice wisdom yet so yes. you're turning to the literature because that's what you've been trained in at uni like you know yep. look at the research and, <laughs> who's written on this yeah, yeah yeah you know what's happening about this sort of population and there wasn't much um there wasn't much with a youth work orientation and there wasn't there was very little that actually captured kind of the pathways in and out of and sort of the, the experiences of young people with substance use issues. Yes. A lot of the stuff that was being done, and it was like it was good stuff, it was useful stuff, this is not to diminish that, but it was stuff that's looking at connections between substance use. At the time that I started, that was when 
gosh, it sounds absurd now, but at the time, that's when they were starting to kind of say that you know, substance use and mental health were kind of inextricably linked. The, and it wasn't the dual diagnosis yeah, debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which kind of was a big thing and, and that was kind of flattened out. But, yeah, so <clears throat> when I was entering the field, that was kind of where it was at. It was like um, you were getting people that were turning up to substance use services and um, – they're saying, oh, this is a mental health issue, you need to see a psych. And the psychs were like, oh, I can't, you know, yeah. address your issues until you've resolved your substance use. And then, yeah, the dual diagnosis came about. The siloing debates of, yeah, yeah, yeah. are you mental no health or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but as a consequence, at the time, like a lot of um, funding and interest in research was looking at the links between the two, you know. And there was a lot of it was chicken or egg sort of stuff and prevalence, you know. Um, psychosis was a, a reasonably new and emerging practice, obviously not a, a new and emerging field, but like looking at um, early intervention, you know, origin were really leading the way yes. as a service provider there. The early psychosis services. Yeah, and, yeah. and this recognition that getting in early with young people will have, you know, better outcomes. Yes. So that was a lot of the, the youth substance use literature in um, Australia was looking at that, that kind of stuff. The other sort of stuff was looking at um, health and crime and, and like, sort of the risk and protection literature. So a lot of it was epidemiological research, you know, yes. finding... Um, I, I guess the big thing for me was that a lot of the time we're talking about risk factors and early age of initiation was a strong predictor of later substance abuse. And as a worker in it, that information doesn't help you in your practice because you're already in it like you're working with the people the, the risks have already happened yeah 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 they're all there yeah. and there's a whole bunch of new ones as yes. well you know um but what I found really curious and I don't know if it was because I was a practitioner or just sort of seeing it was it doesn't work both ways like if you gave, went and gave every 10 year old cannabis they're not all going to get substance use problems like mm -hmm. so I was like well how come no one's talking about what environments are 10 year olds in where drugs were available and appealing to them um, and that, I guess that research question hadn't been documented. So there wasn't much looking at youth substance abuse sociologically in Australia. Yes. There was a big body of work in the UK around the normalisation thesis and um, debates around that. But again, that was largely epidemiological stuff. So I guess my curiosity in research came about from you know working as a practitioner and realising that there was this gap. And one of the the big dilemmas was that if the young people who I worked with, they often weren't represented. So, because what you're like, it's obviously it's a, you know, in quotation marks, hard to reach population. Sure. And so those that are studied tend to be the higher functioning ones because they're able to turn up. Easier to, for the researcher to, to get. their appointment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and particularly because a lot of the stuff was coming from psych and it was intervention, like they were measuring the efficacies of different types of interventions. Yes. So usually it was a 12-week, like they needed to do their 12-week CBT program and then move on to the next measure thing. effects, yeah. you know. So it's a, it was a big commitment for research participants. So the studies had huge dropout rates, which is not because the research was bad, it's just the nature of the group. But it often meant that the findings kind of represented an atypical group yes. of substance users. And, you know, we're living this neoliberal time of evidence-based policy and practice. So what we're seeing was that what like funding was going to these interventions that were evidence based, but they weren't necessarily based on our population. Like you couldn't, the clients I was working with, the idea of a twelve week CBT intervention, forty five minutes, you know, it's like, 
I've got to find them somewhere to sleep. Mm. They haven't eaten this week. Or, the, you know, like... So they weren't reaching those risky populations. Yeah. And um, so I guess there was, you know, some work done on youth substance abuse in, in Australia. It wasn't necessarily about, you know, looking at it as a sort of social issue or an individual, like looking at sort of individual biographies and using that as a way to understand it. A lot of it was statistical risk protection and with kind of a high functioning group. So I was, I was, yeah, so I guess I was a practitioner and I was seeing these gaps um, and the opportunity came up to do like an honours study and like I was working in an organisation that had a research department and they kind of, you know, wanted some work done in that space. And so I, it just started me just doing a small study to help me kind of understand something a little bit more. Yeah, great. And that's one of the things we love at Ultimate Youth Worker is where the on the ground, the coalface worker sees an issue and starts to mull over it a bit and try to work out what, what, what that looks like. And it's turned into a book. <laughs> it has. It has. <laughs> so tell, tell me about the research method you used and why you chose that, that framework. Yeah, so... Um, for the the book, I um, most of it comes from life history, sort of biographical interviews with young people in um, treatment services across the state. And originally, we were we I was planning on also looking at um, doing very structured interviews with workers, um, data database like service a lot of places were still using paper based notes like workers had information on clients like they knew yes their client, but they didn't actually have the proof yeah like i couldn't download a report finding yep. out how many and this is before we'd done a census of young people so we actually didn't know like how many clients were in aod services across the state or what the gender distribution was or like this information just wasn't available so um the plan was, which I've done in the pilot study and it worked well, is to do structured interviews with workers, almost like a survey, uh, but faced like verbal, to collect this information on their clients. And I was going to you know, collate this to have a demogra- demography of the population. Now, I started that and it was so patchy because people were like, oh, I picked up that client last week and he hasn't engaged yet. So I don't know anything. I don't even know what his substance yeah. use is, let alone if he's been involved in child protection. And there were so many cases of that where it sort of started to defeat the purpose of... Like, there was just too gappy. Yes. Fortuitously at the time, over the course of the PhD, I was working in research in an organisation and we did a, a statewide census of young people in AOD treatments. So I was able to get the information. A perfect timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't feel like perfect timing at the time working on these two big studies <laughs> concurrently. But, yeah, so... um. So it did work out, um, and a lot of it was sort of ethnographic, you know, hanging out in services. I was very keen to engage young people who um, don't put their hands up straight away. You know, like we've all worked in services, and and you know which clients are going to self-nominate yep. for this. And I wanted them, but I also wanted the ones... That hid in the back of the room. <laughs> yeah, that kind of... You know, of course, people, everyone has views, but some of us are more or less keen to articulate them you know and um and usually those that put their hands up straight away are those who have been in services for a long time yes they're practiced at this um they're very familiar with the service and that's great but they're they're a particular demographic group yeah yeah yeah. like not everyone has been 
you know, in a service for seven years. So I wanted to get to people that have been in for seven years as well as those that have been in for seven weeks. Yeah. Um, so I was very keen to just hang out in all of the sites that I was recruiting so people could just get get to know me, even if they weren't talking to me. Oh, she keeps turning up each week. Or, you know, you can get a sense of someone by their demeanour and disposition. And that was really effective, um, particularly um, with the young men. The women were usually um, more comfortable talking to me, and I suspect it's probably because I was a young woman too, and they were often in a detox and there was no other girl in there, yep. you know. And, and, you know, we could go with the generalisation that women like to talk a little bit more than men too. <laughs> well, that came up. So when I started the research, that came up, like, yeah. oh, you know, the girls would give me more but it actually didn't turn out to be true. Aha. Uh-huh. I love it when uh, a myth gets busted. Yeah, and I, I was at a conference. Yeah, so the boys were just as, if not more, revelatory. It just took a long, longer, longer time to, to get arrive there. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the chapter on the boys was actually longer and much more complicated than the girls. <laughs> Which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you hung out, you interviewed 60... Uh, odd people yeah. uh, and uh, you started to get a sense of some of the, the life experiences that had led them mm-hmm. to, to substance abuse. So what from the, the research was some of the, the ways that uh, drug problems started to come out for young people? Um, the Sorry, what were some of the things that started to lead them down the path of using yeah so there was there was a lot of common factors and it's tricky talking about this because i don't want to sort of give the sense that you know it's all it's a generalized yeah but compared to peers of the same age yes significant um, they're very there was a lot of they were in very important ways they were significantly different yes from young people their age more generally. Um, so the group had some similarities, even though they weren't the same. Um, very high rates of all markers of disadvantage. You know, um, the high rates of child protection involvement, very high rates of experience of child abuse, physical and sexual um high rates of them having witnessed family violence, you know, perhaps mum um, being abused. Very few had finished school. Yes. Um, and that was, like, you know, in contrast to, like, 92% of Victorian children will finish year 12 now. Yes. And I think 92% of mine didn't. Yeah. You know, it, it was almost it was inverse. Um, and it wasn't just, like, I dropped out at year 11 there's a big group that didn't get to year seven. Yes. Um, so si- significant education. Yeah, uh, we're talking like, like yeah. don't know how to use email. Yeah. Wow. Which is like unfathomable that yeah. we've got like, I don't even know what their generation is called, Gen X or Gen Z. Or... <laughs> one of the gens. It's not why, <laughs> yeah. you know, like one of the more the, recent ones. The millennials. Millennials, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's young people. Yeah. Gosh, I said old, <laughs> but young people. Um, that don't know how to use email. Which we would see as a, a basic fundamental thing for life these days. Yeah, and like they get their Centrelink, they apply for jobs, like everything is done digitally. And they don't know how to do it. No, they don't like, you know, and there's this assumption that like young people, like a tech native and 
um, it's all intuitive to them. But if you've actually never lived in a home with a computer and you didn't go to school past grade six, yeah, it's actually completely foreign. Which is an idea we'd actually look at aged care and think about rather yeah. than working with 15, 16, 17-year-olds. Yeah. So, um, I mean, certainly that wasn't true for all of them. But, um, you know, it was definitely something that came up. Um, now, then... So some of the other things that um, a lot of them had experienced um, death of an immediate family member, um, and there's no like comparable data to compare. Like, what's the rate of immediate family? Yeah, yeah, you know, like I don't know what the general population, but um, it seemed unusual that so many teenagers had lost a sibling or parent. Yes. You know, because usually people lose parents. Um, Later. Yeah, so, like, really significant trauma. There was a couple of refugees. Um, so there was different types of trauma, but very severe trauma beyond sort of the adversity that, you know, people might typically experience in yeah. their adolescence. There was also a lack of support through that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, often people can, you know, young people are incredibly resilient and they survive and navigate wars and all sorts of things, but do so if they've got the protective factors of school and family yeah. and parents, whereas these people didn't. So in, in your research, you saw people with significant risk factors, very low protective factors, and this seemed to be the average in the, in the group that you were working with. Yeah. 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 Wow. You, you mentioned that there was uh, differences for the young women and the young men, and uh, I, I want to unpack that because uh, I know some of the listeners uh, work with just young men and just young women, and maybe we start with the young women. What yeah. were, were some of the, the uh, factors that you found that uh, were specific to young women? Yeah, so the young... Um, it was actually the young women that illuminated to me that there was gender differences. So I wasn't looking for gender differences, um, in the original pilot study, I was, and I didn't find any. Um, beyond, like, if there'd been a pregnancy, clearly. That doesn't happen for men. <laughs> yeah, you know, but um, in terms of their pathways into, like, they were all disadvantaged. Yes. Whereas once it became a larger study, the broader sample, it became very clear very early on. I didn't, I didn't know what it was, but there was something in it. And the thing that um, indicated to me was the number of young women that were talking about self-injury. Wow. And I wasn't um, inquiring about that. Like, that wasn't um, something that was on my interview schedule. And it just happened to keep coming up. And I think, like, five of the first six young women I interviewed, it came up. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start to look at this more systematically. And I did make sure yeah. that I started to ask. And it wasn't to say that none of the young men self-injured but a disproportionate um, level of young women did yeah it was 20 of the 26 25, it was 80 percent of the young women had wow. a history of self-injury um which you know is obviously very high but it was you know so what's going on here and so i knew something was going on but like if you had have asked me at that point like so what's the link between self-injury uh, and substance use? I mean... It's hard when you're deep in the grass of research to work that out. Yeah, yeah. and you're like, well, clearly there is a link and both of them, like, you know, some people conceptualise substance abuse as a self-harming sort of behaviour. Um, 
but why exactly like you know like rates like that it's you know very high something you have to look at when the 80 percent of the population yeah, yeah, yeah. is doing something yeah, it was more common than not and um and the other so then you know once i had all of my data and i started to do the coding and i was looking at the themes what i found was that of those who had self-injured 80 percent had a history of sexual abuse wow and of those who hadn't self-injured none had been sexually abused right so again there's something going on yes but it took a you know a, a lot of work for me to be confident in and you know in like so i ended up sort of developing a i guess a theory if you will as to what the relationship between those three things were yes um but that took a lot of sort of work and testing like you know you know, I didn't go out and do those things to people. But, <laughs> wow. Yeah, theory testing, like, yes. you know, like looking at it about cases and seeing how often it fit and presenting it to the young women themselves um, to try and unpack what the link was. And there is there is literatures on this, particularly in psychiatry. Um, you know, I certainly wasn't the first person to find that there's a link and there's some people that can test it completely. There's no link, yep. they would argue. Um. But in this study, there clearly was yeah. um, very strong links. And and so, what was that that theory, if you like, that that link that you found? Um. So the I guess the somewhat diluted version is so the order of events was always the same. So it was always sexual abuse first, self injury second, substance abuse third. Wow. And it wasn't like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Often there was years in between those things. Yep. But that was always the pathway and it didn't matter at which point in time if a person's life, the first one occurred. So it didn't matter if it was a, a early childhood, mid-teens. Yeah. Yep. So it always happened in that order. order. Um, and this, like, so having, like, you know, such st- strong patterns was very helpful because... Yes. I didn't understand what it was, but it's like, okay, well, this is the order, like, you know, it helps sort of lead you to what it might all be about. Then um, the other thing that was quite interesting was that I think only two of the women um, had ever actively made a decision to stop self-injury, yet by the time I met them, all of them except for one had stopped self-injury entirely. Wow, okay. You know, and when I'd ask them, you know, when, you know, do you still self-injure and... Um, you know, what made the decision stop? Often they couldn't even really remember. Like it was, I can't really remember. I kind of just stopped doing it. Like it just slowly faded out of their life. There hadn't been professional interventions. They hadn't like made the choice. One young woman had, her boyfriend's brother had committed suicide by cutting his wrists and it was sort of a bit of a sensitive issue. And she said, I just found other ways to 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 try and, you know, like to serve the function, the self-injury function. Um, but, yeah, so generally it had just petered out and the young women hadn't realised, I guess, until I was talking to me, that that sort of diminished at the time that substance use was increasing. Right. So as an outsider hearing this and, you know, hearing case after case, it was like, oh, okay, so substance use functionally replaced self-injury. Yeah. Because both of them Serve a purpose. served essentially the same yeah. purpose for the young woman, like, you know, released emotional pain... And so then the question is why? Like, why would, you know, um, substance use was more socially acceptable, was something they could do with their peers, they could do with their boyfriends, like, you know, contrary to sort of myth on the internet, like groups of girls don't just sit around and hang out and 
cut up together. Like, it's not a... Really? Yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> Obviously, um, I'm reading the wrong websites. <laughs> you know, and self-injury is still really stigmatised. Like, for these young women, I was usually the first person that ever, like, just had a discussion with them. When I would ask them, oh, okay, so what, you know, what did you like about self-injury? They are almost stunned. Like, oh, that's not... Like, normally people look at me like, I haven't been asked that before. I'm mad, yeah. yeah. And also to be talking to someone who felt comfortable hearing about it. Yep. And obviously because I've worked in it, it's not as confronting, you know, when you've actually... You know, it's always... These things are all shocking the first time. And yes. But by, by the hundred... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, and so even though self-injury generally gave them less harm than substance use, like they got some superficial wounds, but none of it was... Significant health concerns. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was, like, I'm not meaning to diminish it, but in terms of, like, severity, it was usually just scratches, like they didn't yes. get any treatment, didn't get infected, and whereas substance use often led them into much more dire circumstances on a, a regular basis. Yeah, you know, because obviously drugs cost a lot of money, um, there's health issues, sharing needles, like, you know, but, there's, but that was more acceptable. Yep. You know, so... Now, what was it about self-injury for girls who had sexually abused themselves? Part of it um, was the relationship with the body. Um, for some of the young women, so it wasn't a single pathway, but for some of the young women... They felt that um, their body was the attracted this unwanted sexual attention. Yes. And the destruction, like they were angry at their, their physical body. And so, and, how can I make myself less attractive, less. Yeah, there was prone. that. And, and having control over their bodies again. Like, if it's going to be damaged, I am going to do it. Do it. Um, and for some of the young women, it was making physical, emotional pain. Yes. Um, you know, you can actually see I'm in, I'm in pain. Um, and for a lot of young women, it was a release, you know, and this yeah. is really common, this idea of it being a release. Um, a release of intolerable emotions, like yeah. if I get distracted by the physical discomfort of the cutting, it's a release of the emotional discomfort. And interestingly, from another group of people, it was the opposite was true. It okay. was they had that sort of psychological sense of dissociation, that, you know, their stress from the trauma they've been through was so high, they'd just cut off emotions. Wow. And cutting just, like, broke that. Yes. Um, what brought them back to reality. Yeah. Um, so it, it was a... There's complex ways in which it worked, but it served the function of releasing and managing and dealing with emotional pain. Which would sit very well with the literature on self-injury. Yeah, yeah, great. That that's um, it's it's very interesting to to think from a youth work perspective that w when uh, we're working with young women who have been sexually abused and uh, that they move into a, a self-injurious space that we sh should be thinking about. Well, that that could lead then to uh, ongoing substance, substance use yeah. issues. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and for, for the young men, what, what was your, your key kind of findings there for, for young men? So the, the young men, were they were a lot more complex to figure out. <laughs> which, um, which I always thought it was women who were complex, uh, but no, it's uh, us men. <laughs> oh, wow. The young, like, so the young women, it was um, 
it was very clear very early what the pattern was. Took a lot of thinking and you know looking at literature and ruminating on like why that happened. But there was essentially one pathway. Yes, you know, there wasn't one, but but one very clear yeah, one that you know accounted for most of them. The young men, um, when I spoke to every like every interview, every young man that I interviewed. I got to the end of the interview and I completely understood how they ended up where they were. Like, it was never kind of random. I fell off the tracks. I thought, you know, like, oops, I, you know, took drugs once and then I was Hooked. addicted for life. Yeah. Like, you know, it was none of that. I, I tripped and fell into drugs. and Yeah. <laughs> um, but there was still a lot of diversity. And there was a lot more class diversity. Um, in the young women, nearly everyone was very... Um, disadvantaged, very low socioeconomic backgrounds. Whereas the young men, we had a couple of private school kids. Um, I mean, generally it was by and large still a low SES group, but there was diversity. Like the types of traumas, like there'd always been a trauma, but they'd been very different. Yeah. And some young men were very distressed by parental separation, and that was a big part. And other young men, their parents separated and, yeah, so be it, you know, like it, um, so, so it was actually difficult to sort of theorise around what's going on here. Um, and it wasn't until near the end of the interviews, I can't remember, like, but it was, like, with the young girls, I was like, interview five, I'm like, oh, there's a pattern. And I was in an interview with a young man and kind of all of the pennies dropped all at once and everything fell into place. Isn't that such the way? <laughs> oh, my God. But, like, yeah. and then when it's, I was like, oh, yeah. how did I not figure this out earlier? Um, and, you know, going through my actual notes as a researcher, you know, you sort of just keep a diary on, um, you know, your reflections on your experiences of interviewing, particularly because the interviews were quite um, emotionally heavy in yeah. nature. like Good critical reflection. Yeah, it was almost like a... A debrief, a decompress sort of after, you know, after each interview, just taking some notes. Um, and they were really more about me just... Venting. Yeah, it wasn't about... They weren't, just certainly weren't part of the data or yeah. I didn't necessarily have any intention of going back to look at it. It was almost like a journal. Yes. Um, but I did go back to look at it at one point. I can't remember why. But... Um, and what I actually found was that there was very strong themes in the nature of the interviews themselves. I said the young women, the interview really always began with them just wanting some small talk. Yeah. Because there's that rapport building, like, you know, I'm about to tell this woman my whole life. Like, I want to know a little who is bit. She? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Legitimately, I'm going to say, yeah. Um, and the young women, like, yeah, a lot of the interviews were preceded with just chats about nail polish or when was the right time for them to move in with their boyfriend or is this a normal period like normal adolescent girl stuff yeah and they generally didn't have other adolescent girls in their lives so they didn't have that opportunity to have girl talk anyway because usually by the time they were in substance abuse treatment they were in a male dominated world yes um yeah whereas the boys were not talking to me about any of these things the beginning of the interview. And um, the boys' interviews, you typically, not always, began with a lot of bravado. Uh-huh. Like their demeanour, their disposition, their talk was punctuated with a lot of kind of 
wearing and they were tough and they were cool and uh, my shit doesn't stink yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> they don't cry boys don't cry and they're tough and they're, you know like yeah um and that, that's how they often began and it definitely wasn't like 90 percent of the time there were some boys who were much more sort of introverted and shy but there was a lot of that that yeah. sort of machismo but almost all of the young men cried during the interview at some point um wow so it was like these chalk and cheese yeah two extremes in the nature of the interview and in each interview it, that didn't actually i wasn't reflecting on that because by the time they cried we'd usually gotten to a point where they're talking about something, something terrible where crying was completely appropriate and having sort of worked in that field and like you know being you know some movies like cry like you know boys crying wasn't something that was striking to me like of course boys cried you know they're emotional yeah. beings and stuff you know which may have been uh striking for the boys themselves and that's the thing and usually it was because they were like you know after the interview and they usually felt like they had like a, a special bond with me because they might not have cried in front of somebody else before um so but I was, I don't know, the 20th or something, boy that I interviewed, it might have even been more, I interviewed 35 of them. Um, he, this exact same thing unfolded with him. I don't know what it was about this interview that made Ma- it all make sense, but it was. Time. <laughs> yeah, and it, I, don't, I, don't, I just sort of, um, but I realised that, like, the idea of being a man and masculinity and how these these young men's ideas of masculinity really constrained them in being able to deal with the traumas that they'd all been through. So while their traumas were all different, they had all been in worlds where there was very strong ideas about... Being a man. Being a man. And part of that was um, they... You know, we live in a world where, like, the whole man is the breadwinner, you know, woman stays at home model can't really exist anymore. Like, you can't, yep. nobody can get a mortgage without both people working. Like, that, you know... The, the 1950s model isn't it's there gone. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and middle-class kids usually know that middle-class girls are usually playing and having a career and often they've got parents or both people work. Yep. And the men usually make, you know, middle-class kids make their money in a desk job. Yes. Um, you know, so they need some sort of academic skills and qualifications and, you know, will typically go to university. Now, so that's become the new kind of pathway. The new norm. Manhood and, you know, adulthood more generally. (coughs) Now, for these young men, it became like their barriers to education and being excluded from schools, that was not attainable to them. Like, if you're kicked out of school, you said them. You're not going to uni to then go and work at KPMG, are you? No, you're you know? going to pack boxes at the local factory or something. Yeah, like that. and that's probably not going to cover your rent, let alone look after them. So when I asked these same people what they wanted for their future, they had very 1950s ideas about what this is the men and the women. Yep. Breadwinner, stay at home wife kind of logic, which was interesting because most of them had been raised by single mums who had worked. Right. But the men really felt, I need to get. I need to get a job, a car, a house, a wife and kids in that order. Because I need to be a provider. Yeah, and so um, I think that subconsciously that young men were realising, okay, so that pathway is 
to manhood's not accessible to me. And when they were at school, so the young men spoke a lot to me about falling in with the wrong crowd. And it came up so often that I started to sort of make a joke. I'm like, oh, this wrong crowd, very elusive, you know. Everyone keeps falling in with them, but I've never met them. Yeah. You know? And um, <laughs> I, I think we, we all as youth workers are still trying to find that, the that wrong, wrong crowd. crowd. Well, it's amazing yeah. because – but they sound like a very welcoming group of people because they <laughs> They let everyone. anyone in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there are some social norms around being a participant in the wrong crowd, as I learned. Um, <laughs> and uh, so some of these were – you had to be tough. It had to be cool and you couldn't be vulnerable. You couldn't, particularly as a male, you couldn't display. You couldn't cry. Vulnerability. And you certainly couldn't cry or talk about your childhood trauma. You know, so while they were a very accepting group, there was still group norms. Norms. And um, to be a part of the wrong crowd was a, gave you some social currency. Like if you were the naughty kid at school that was being kicked out of classroom and you were almost a bit cool, a bit tough, a bit, and it so it gave these young men some mass, uh, like a sense of masculine masculinity identity. that wasn't the white collar. I'm going to work at KPMG, so it was accessible to them. Um, and this was also it served many purposes. So for like, there's a couple of young men who came here as refugees, or um, you know, general forced migration, and you know, arrived here when they were 12 and didn't speak any English and were put into year eight because they were 12 and that's... What you do. Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, like didn't want to read aloud in class and would sit there almost, you know, having anxiety attacks about being asked to read aloud. Because English is my fifth or sixth language. Because they couldn't speak English. Yeah, yeah. And so the crowd that wagged classes gave them friends, gave them a sense of pride, of group, of masculinity. And got them out of that anxiety. anxiety-provoking situation. Yeah. So, um, so there, were, <coughs> there was a lot of this. You know, really served multiple functions. Um, so, even though there was all different reasons for why these young men had these, you know, emotional issues and emotional distress, all of them were constrained by what it meant in their worlds to be a man. Now. They figured that out by the wrong crowd and being a participant, but it also meant that they were never allowed to deal with any of those emotional things. Now, the wrong crowd often used drugs or participating, you know, usually pretty petty crime. Um, and the young men sometimes liked taking drugs and sometimes didn't. You know, it wasn't that uncommon that they, like, oh, the first time I tried it, I really didn't like it, it made me feel sick. But they kept doing it because that was, again, one of the group norms. The peer factor. Um, And also, like, there were some young men that were, like, in rooming houses or boarding houses and they were physically small in stature and so they needed, like, allies to... Make them safe. To be safe when they slept, yeah. So if that meant I'm going to smoke a joint with you to be, like... I'll smoke a joint. I'll smoke a joint, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, And, and I would have too. (laughs) I don't know too many of us who, uh, to feel safe, wouldn't do something that's out of character. Yeah, Yeah. Um, I'll feel a bit queasy after a joint if it means I can not be attacked tonight. Sleep well tonight, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, so there was a lot of sort of, you know, this stuff unfolding. Um, And so that's often how they were introduced to drugs. But then they, the drugs, they realised 
blocked out a lot of that emotional stuff that was causing them was anxiety the source and of many of their problems. Yeah. yeah. So then you can see how drugs started to become more and more appealing. But the problem is, as we all know, you know, if those as they all drank too much to deal yeah. with whatever emotional stress. It's a maladaptive coping strategy. <laughs> Doesn't work too well in the long term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um. And so then it wasn't uncommon for the boys to have aggressive outbursts or like not even just aggressive, just emotional was almost like all of the stuff that was bottled up at times would just Burst. blow out. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it meant smashing a bus stop. Sometimes it meant a psychotic episode. Sometimes it meant an absolute emotional breakdown. Like but it, there were, there were points. Eventually that has to come out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and for a lot of them it came out. What wasn't the first time, but... It came out in the interviews with me. Yeah. You know, that once we started to scratch at the surface, um, all of that raw stuff that had been sort of pushed down, pushed down, came out and they realised the door was closed and no one could see them except for me and that all of this, you know, the tears could just... And often once they started crying, they couldn't stop. Yeah. Like it was just like, you know, years of tears were suddenly allowed to come out. Or if you've pushed it down and held it down for so long there's a big dam to yeah. come out. Yeah. And obviously I offered all of them the option, you know, yeah. to stop, take a break, like, you know, to pretty much do whatever they wanted to do and they all wanted to continue. Um, but I think like the young women, they felt like they were allowed to cry, like, like the young women felt yeah. allowed to talk about self-injury. Yeah, so when they would start to come on, don't worry, like, you know, yeah. everyone else has cried too, totally and uncomfortable. Yeah. With your crying, I have a glass of water, don't feel like you need to keep it in, just yeah. let it out. I'm just going to check the recorder. You know, so let them know. Like, they don't need to stop crying. Crying It's not bad. I'm not in a hurry. Yeah. It's it's not hurting their masculinity yeah. to cry. And that I'm yeah. not, you know, because often our reaction, is like, oh, you have some tissues and let's change the subject. How, you know, yeah. I've distressed you. Whereas it's like... I like I knew that I hadn't distressed them. I'd yeah. given them the opportunity to express their distress at previous things that had happened. Um, but yeah, so it, it really shifted the interviews. But so it took me a long time to figure out that that's what that's why the interviews were that way. That's why they went from this tough machismo to this vulnerable young man, um, you know, and what that meant for them and their substance use. So you've got these young men whose picture of what it means to be a man is very much the 1950s uh, uh, hard charger, take no prisoners, never show emotion, uh, breadwinner type who realise that that's not the world that we live in anymore, uh, who have had some form of traumatic uh, experience early in life and uh, have bottled that up for so Mm -hmm. long and moved into hanging out with this wrong crowd uh, as a way of uh, feeling either safety or uh, moving away from that anxiety, provoking provoking stuff uh, to to deal uh, with what's going on there. Yep. Wow. So with all, all this stuff that's gone on for young men, young women, how, how then did they start to uh, look at moving on from a substance use problem? Yeah, so they were all at different points in that pathway when I met them. Some oh. were had tried before and were trying again. Some were quite far along. Some were just at the beginning of moving on. Um, what 
became abundantly clear to me was that it was much more important for us as workers to look at protective factors rather than risk factors. Because the risk stuff's already happened. Uh, yeah. You know, they've already been abused or they're already in a low socioeconomic uh, environment. You can't change that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and whereas the protective factors, like, you know, having a sense of meaningful daily activity, like that there was a purpose to getting out of bed. You know, if you're kicked out of school and you're 15... What do you What's do? your purpose? Yeah. Like, you know, like what do you, what, what is going to motivate you to get out of bed and not stay at home and smoke bombs all day? Yeah. Or to hang out with the wrong crowd? Like, you know, like no one else is available to hang out. Yeah. Because um, everyone else is at school. Yeah. So, you know, getting people connected with things that were meaningful to them, not that are meaningful to us as adults, mm-hmm. but, you know, whether it's improving their relationships with family or friends or if they need um, housing or education or the internet or like, you know, whatever's important to them. And not just, like, stuff that's going to help them to get a job, but stuff that they actually enjoy. Because if I suddenly learn that, you know, and that they've got access to, like, there's no point getting them interested in skydiving. Like, if they're not, what are they yeah. going to be able to How are they going to be able to do that? Yeah. So, um, you know, but if they suddenly learn that they like, you know, shooting hoops at the local basketball court, and, you know, they're going to learn pretty quickly. So one of the young men in the study, he learned that he liked running. Wow. Like he was, and he was actually had a real natural gift for it. And he was being picked up by a sort of talent coach, but it was kind of like, well, I can't do this if I keep smoking bongs. Yep. And it's his love of running and desire to be good at that. Overrode. Overrode the love of bongs, yep. yeah. Um, you know, so all of those sort of things really helped people. Um, often people, they'd be people they've been sort of what I refer to as like tipping points at which they were just like I I need to change my life and it might have been a significant event it might have been a pregnancy you know a young woman pregnant she's like I can't use drugs it. I'm not yeah. using drugs yeah um, sometimes it was contact with the justice system and that once was enough yeah you know so what the actual tipping point was varied varied and then how successful people were in you know continually been moving forward like we know the stages change usually there's some yep. you know hiccups along the way um but yeah the main thing was having you know access to protective factors you know for those that didn't you know for those that had no parents had no friends no education yeah. you know heavy entrenched drug use for a long period of time perhaps a criminal record I mean, things things were a lot harder. Yeah, yeah, because there's more risk factors there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which really kind of flies in the face of this idea of if we just get them back into education, employment, or training, uh, all will be well in the world. Because if you if you're not interested, if you don't have friendship network there, all those things, it makes it very difficult to. Yeah, and there was enjoy. a lot of um, a lot of them doing courses, particularly the women. The young women were much more likely to have been involved in you know, extra education, yeah. but usually it hadn't actually led to employment. So a yeah. lot of them, there must have, like, I became convinced that at the time there must have been some sort of funding scheme for aged care. Yeah. Because all of those who had studied had pretty much done some sort of certificate <laughs> in aged care. When, when I was in drug and alcohol, it was hair and beauty. Oh, okay. <laughs> yep. So, like, but many of them couldn't get employed in aged care because they had criminal records. Yeah. So, like, why is, like... So they got access to education, but it actually didn't improve their long-term yeah. outcome. So this idea that just as long as they got a horse, yeah, 
because that gets them back into education, employment, or training. Yeah, for the young men, usually, like the young men tend to fare a little better. Like they could sort of turn up on a construction site. Yep. And do some hard labour. Hard labour, yeah. Yep. So the young women were tended to have more education, but poorer employment yeah. outcomes when it got to the point that they were looking for that. Uh, okay, so protective factors are, are the thing, and it has to be something that they're interested in, they want to do. Who would have thought that's basic youth work? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, I really appreciate your, your time, Kat, and uh, I think this is an area that uh, youth workers particularly, we need to get our heads around. Uh, we often hear all the myths of uh, why young people move into uh, substance use and, and the like, but uh, seeing those uh, uh, factors, particularly for young, men, uh, young men and young women, uh, are really good for us. Hey, where, where can people get a copy of the book? Because I think it's something that they should really have a read of. <laughs> um, to be honest, the hardback is really overpriced until it comes out in paperback. Um, <laughs> I mean, so university libraries have copies of it. Um, otherwise, there's an e-book available online. You Google it, you'll find it. Excellent. And where can they find you aside from uh, hanging out at RMIT? Oh, gosh. Asleep, teaching, <laughs> teaching Pilates. Um, nowhere exciting. Really. Nowhere exciting. Oh well, well, we'll have to change that eventually. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- thanks again, Kat, and um, thanks for being on the the podcast with us. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for listening to the Ultimate Youth Worker Podcast. If you liked what you heard, why not tell your friends and get them to subscribe to the cast?